This is the Alpha Universe Podcast. I'm Christopher Robinson, editor of alphauniverse.com. And on today's show, I'm speaking with photojournalist and Sony artisan of imagery, Nancy Borowick. In Tech Talk, Sony's Amy Kopman explains how to use lens stabilization in conjunction with camera stabilization. And we get some Do This Now tips from Nancy Borowick for photographers who want to do the kind of photojournalistic storytelling that she's famous for. Everyone wants to be a storyteller. Nancy Borowick is the kind of photographer who reveals the heart of a story through incredibly intimate photos. Just a few years out of school, Borowick faced a family tragedy, and she used the camera as a means of exploring her feelings and the lives of her parents in the face of profound emotional challenges. It's been said that what's most personal is most universal. And when James Estrin of the New York Times saw the photos, he reached out to Borowick to publish the story. That experience has shaped how Borwick approaches every assignment she's had, and in many ways, it made her the photographer that she is today. I spoke with Nancy as she was finishing a move back to New York after spending several years living in Guam. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Nancy, I'd like to ask how you got started in photography. I got started in photography when I was a freshman in high school. I, you know, like I took your photo one class and was learning how to develop my own film. And, and I spent a lot of time in the darkroom and just kind of fell in love with the process of photography. But I've always loved telling stories. And so it, it actually ended up sort of being a natural a natural tool that I leaned on once I got my hands on my very first camera to tell stories. You know, obviously also cared about justice and fairness, but I was always telling stories. So it, 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 it just kind of reaffirms for me that I took the right path <laughs> creatively and professionally. <laughs> when you're speaking about telling stories, especially with a camera, what does it take to, to tell a story visually? It takes patience. And I think one of the greatest strengths that we have as photographers is that we are observers. You know, like we're not just, I think what, that's what separates us from just someone with a camera. You observe, you connect, you get to know your subjects. You genuinely are interested in the subject matter that you're photographing. I, I've definitely worked on projects, short-term projects, where you could tell that it wasn't something I was passionate about because it came through in the photographs. Whereas when it's something I am passionate about or it is something that I'm drawn to personally, I think it translates into the images that you make. I feel like everything moves so fast today and, <laughs> and digital cameras, digital technology makes it so easy to move so, so fast. I think there's a real value in slowing down sometimes. You know, with film, you had 36 chances. With digital, you've got infinite number. And there's something to that notion of maybe slowing down and, and imagining as though you've only got 36. Right. So I just did my very first National Geographic assignment, which was like, I mean, I was so nervous and so excited. And, and so naturally, I was a little trigger happy. But I had to catch myself because part of doing an assignment with National Geographic is they require that you send every frame that you shoot, even the mistakes. And as any photographer knows, sharing your entire take is, is, is so vulnerable and terrifying. Um, I mean, obviously everyone makes mistakes, but it sort of forced me. I mean, I wanted to feel free and shoot, but it also sort of forced me to be, to, to be more mindful 
because if I was, you know, like everything that I shot was going to be sent over to those editors and it was a good challenge because I had to really think about what I was doing and not throw away all those early frames or those late frames. Once I got the, the lighting I liked and the frame I liked, just sort of trusting that, you know, that was the shot and not overdoing it and not overthinking it. I'm continuing to grow and learn, which makes me happy to kind of say out loud because I'm, I'm acknowledging it for myself that that's part of the process, <laughs> you know, and that's, I, I hope to continue learning and growing uh, throughout my career. When you're, when we're talking about telling a story with photography, how much are you trying to tell in a single frame versus how much you're trying to, you know, plan frames and think of them in a sequence in a broader story? So, when I am excited about a project or an assignment, I can't help but start to visualize sort of a shot list in my head of like my dream images. I also make a little bit of a list in my head of all the images that I think I need to take to tell the story to cover my bases. And then I'm like, you know what, I need to throw those lists out the window. Like I need to just trust <laughs> my gut and move and, and move with my camera. And because what ends up happening is you show up and the situation is never exactly what you imagined. <laughs> so I, I do a little bit of both. A major lesson that I've learned time and time again is that you might think you know what the story is about, especially if it's a story that you are you know, seeking out, but you have to be open to the fact that that might not be the story that you ultimately tell. And maybe the story you ultimately tell will be even better. So, you know, it's not just the obvious thing. Like with my family, at first glance, the story was about cancer. And, and you look beyond that. Actually, James Estrin from the New York Times, he's a mentor of mine. And I remember sitting down with him and he said, so what is this story about? And I said, well, it's about cancer. And he said, but what's it really about? <laughs> and I was like, it's about family. And he said, but what is it really about? <laughs> I was like, oh gosh, um, it's about relationships. It's about love. It's about connection. It's about carry. Like, and, and that pushed me to, to start to think about, you know, the different themes that the story was covering, but also it kind of opened my eyes up to things to think about while I was shooting, the kind of new lenses through which to see my world. You mentioned the project with your family. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to come back and talk about how that came about a little bit. Sure. So um, back in 2012, really how it all started was my, my parents sat my siblings and I down for dinner. And I remember it so vividly because they told me to pick the restaurant. I picked my favorite restaurant, Cafe Orlin, which is no longer there in New York City. And I ordered my halloumi cheese salad. And as we're waiting for our food to come out, my dad and my mom kind of looked at each other. And I thought, oh, gosh, like my mom was already in, I don't know, year 16, 17 of breast cancer. And I thought something was about to we were about to get some news about her when in fact it was my father who had news for us. He told us that he had inoperable stage four pancreatic cancer. Suddenly both my parents were sick and dying. And I, it, I didn't know what to do with this information because I was really close with them. And, and you don't think, I don't know, you don't think it's going to happen to you. And then it happens to you and you're kind of in shock. And I didn't quite know what to do with myself. And I didn't know how to be with them. And I didn't know how to wrap my head around this new reality. So naturally, I 
picked up my camera and I, I knew I wanted to spend time with them. As a freelance photographer, I have the luxury, I see it as a luxury of having complete control over my schedule because it's a kind of no control. But <laughs> at the same time, I can pick and choose like my my timing and I wanted to spend time with them. And it felt natural to just start photographing our life because I kind of didn't know how to be there without my camera. I didn't know how to understand this new reality. I was 27 and just getting my life started and, and, and my camera became my lifeline. I knew I needed to be with my parents. I wanted to be around them. I wanted to advocate for them. And I, I kind of like didn't know what to do with myself when I was there, especially when they were in treatment. But also a few years earlier, I was, uh, I was a student at the International Center of Photography in their photojournalism and doc program. And while I was a student there, my mother had had her first recurrence uh, with breast cancer. And similarly, you know, like I, I didn't, I wanted to spend time with her. I was in school and the only way I could rationalize spending time with her was if I said that I was going to do a project about her. My teachers, of course, were like, you know, of course you can do that. And, and so I had been photographing my mother years earlier while she was in treatment. And I think in many ways by photographing them, I was able to kind of, I was able to be with them physically, but I was also able to give myself a bit of distance. Mm -hmm. I don't, I didn't realize that how, just how valuable and important that distance was to my overall well-being until later on in the process. But it gave me a purpose. I couldn't heal them. I have no medical experience, no medical knowledge. There was, I couldn't do anything to make the situation better. But maybe I could tell our story and, or just document our story for me as my journal, for them to, you know, to sort of be the conversation opener Mm -hmm. um, in this situation. And I never planned on sharing it. It was just sort of for me, but that's, that's a, that's another story. How did you come to, to share it then? <laughs> well, so as a photographer, <laughs> you know, you have these moments where you're like, I wonder if I'm too close to this story and, and maybe I'm missing something. You know, I was always wearing these two hats, right? I was a photographer and a daughter and I was wearing them simultaneously. And there were moments, I think when I, I think because I was at times treating this situation like a project, it was giving me that a little bit of that safe distance from actual reality. You know, like these are my parents and they're dying. No, this is my photo project. And I'm, I'm creating an edit. Like I, I'm a crazy person. Photographers do weird things like that. Um, or maybe it's just me. <laughs> but I was worried that because I was so close to the subject matter, I mean, this is my family, that I was going to miss something. And down the line, I was worried I would regret having missed moments that maybe didn't stand out to me because I, they're just my, my normal, my, my life. So I showed the work to a friend who was an editor, former editor, teacher, and she was really moved by it and said, and, you know, and said to me, like, have you shared this with anyone? I think you should if you're comfortable, because I think it would help a lot of people out there. And it was the first time, like, I'd ever even thought about that. Like, why would anyone else care about my family story? Like, to be honest, it wasn't about the photography in my mind, right? Like, it was, this is just my life as it's unfolding. And I was really scared. I was just sort of getting my feet wet in the industry. Like, nobody knew who I was. Like, I was just sort of 
really just sort of building my tools and my tool belt. And I kind of sheepishly submitted my photographs to a contest because I figured I don't have to actually like face to face with anyone. I could just put them out there in the universe. And it was a small contest and I didn't win. But one of the judges was James Estrin from the New York Times. And he emailed me a few days later and said, I need to publish your story. Wow. And that was, I was so, it was surreal because I'm like, oh my gosh, James Estrin from the New York Times, like this is crazy and called my parents and was like, so the New York Times wants to publish our story and they were like, why? <laughs> <laughs> like, what, like why? But you know what, like if this is important to you and your career and if this can help anyone out there, then what do we have to lose? So I was lucky because a lot of people tell me, you know, like my parents wouldn't let me photograph them and I wish I could have like, or they definitely wouldn't have let me share. And, and I'm so grateful that both my, that my parents both let me photograph them and that they let me share our story because it has, it has truly helped me. It's helped me in my grief. It's helped me grow. It's helped me understand life in a whole new way. And, um, it's been a gift It's that keeps on giving, and I'm grateful to them for that. It reminded me that just the power that photography has to tell these universal stories and to connect us in a time when we feel so disconnected. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about what you've been doing very recently. I'd like to talk about your dog's project. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How did the dog's project begin? And I'm, so, I'm calling it the dog's project. I know that's not really what it's called. It's just kind of how I think of it. The dog project actually started as an outgrowth of of my my situation with my family because after my dad died, so he died a year after diagnosis, I sort of withdrew from the world because as much as I'd like to think that my camera was this shield protecting me, I'm human and I just lost my dad. And a few months later, the Westminster Dog Show came to town, the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. Mm-hmm. And an, an editor of mine called me and said, I know that you're, you know, it's been, it's been really rough lately, but I know you love dogs. What do you think? Do you want to shoot it? And I said, you know what? This is a good idea. So I did it. And it kind of brought me back to life. Like being around all these, I've always loved dogs, but just being surrounded by like thousands of dogs, just it brought me so much joy. And I, I think I really needed that. And the following year, about 364 days later, after my father died, my mother passed away. And I fell into that same funk again. You know, like, obviously, like, it was, I, was, I was grieving so much and feeling so much. And then February rolled around again, and the editor called me again and said, you know, the dog show's back. What do you think? And I, you know, immediately it was like, yes, absolutely. And that, again, brought me back to life. It brought me back to the, the, the world of the living and just to be around people and dogs. And, and after that, I started to think, okay, what I need to trust myself and trust my gut. And what is it about these dogs that I'm so drawn to? Like, I understand that it's been extremely therapeutic for me to be around them, but like, what else is it besides them being so cute and so expressive and silly and whatever? It's all been part of this journey, I think, of trying to understand who I am, you know, like understand my identity and understand what what makes me tick. And that's what I love about photography. It, it allows you to just dive in and experiment and, and surprise yourself. So I found that what I was most drawn to at the dog show was, it wasn't the dog show itself. It was 
the the people there and their relationship with their dogs. Some of these people who are the, you know, breeders and owners and handlers, they commit their everything to these dogs. These dogs are their family. And it, it took me some time to realize that I think in some ways, having just lost a big part of my own family, I was searching for that understanding and connection. And so I found myself really wanting to get to know these people and their relationship with their dogs. Okay, and and yes, I wanted to roll around with puppies and I thought, okay, let me just start inviting myself into people's homes and just like seeing where it leads. Uh, so that's what I did because life is is short and I I want to, I maybe not just joy, but meaning. And I admire my colleagues and friends who are telling really, really important stories around the world and really making a difference in people's lives. And and I like to think that in some way I can do that with my photography as well. How are you photographing the dogs? I mean, I just love dogs so much. And they know, I feel like they can, they can smell it on me. They know I'm a dog person. Um, and I just get down and I get in there. I'm just on their level. I love trying to understand the perspective of a dog. Like, so it's less about the dog itself and more about seeing the world through their eyes. I live for the, the unexpected perspective it's been really nice, actually. So I, I'm relatively new to Sony. I became obsessed with the RX1 R2 with the 35. <laughs> I got my hands on that and was just like blown away by like the dynamic range and the, the weight and the quality. I just all of it. Anyway, I became obsessed. And then I started thinking, you know, like I, I wish I was a little bit lighter on my feet because I, I do like to crawl around and I'm not 20 years old anymore. I'm I'm 33 now and I can't do all the things that I used to do. And you mentioned that you just recently switched to Sony. What, um, mm -hmm. and you talked about some of the reasons why, but can you talk more about why you switched to Sony? At this point in my career, I, I'm trying to make more intentional decisions about the way I work, what I work with, and looking at some complaints I've had about other gear. I've been really drawn to, honestly, a lot of the things about the Sony gear. I've always been very interested in mirrorless but also scared to make the transition, you know, like it's a different kind of technology. It's modern technology. And I'd heard great things about the A9 and the A7 III, and, but I was so deeply invested in my other gear, I was scared to shift over. But I found that I was actually using my RX1, R2 as a second body. And then little by little, it just became the main camera I started using, which was crazy because it's so tiny and you know, it just has the fixed 35 attached to it. Like it kind of brought me back to basics. And I, I felt like I was just becoming more fluid with my gear. I was, I didn't feel as like weighed down. Weighed down was a big deal for me because I was always just lugging so much gear around and it slowed me down as a shooter. So I, I had the opportunity to start exploring some new Sony gear and I kind of fell in love immediately. And it's not something where when I'm holding up the camera to my face I'm just being me like I'm not thinking about all the bells and whistles I'm just I'm shooting and observing and doing my thing like it was the transition was relatively seamless there's just like so much cool stuff that the that the a9 and the a7 III have that like I've slowed down a little bit because I want to like experiment with them and one of the things I'm most excited about is the new firmware update the animal IAF because it's like it feels like it was made for me <laughs> It's nice to feel like your gear is just an extension of who you are. And when you're out there in the moment shooting, you're not 
stressing about it. The fact that I can pack all like almost everything I want into my little bag is like blowing my mind. <laughs> I like can't stop talking about it. So I'm, you know, like I, I also like I'm 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 someone who like lives for community. I like I've always been that kind of person. Yeah. So I'm waiting for Sony to like make me. I want I want like a Bjorn like a baby carrier <laughs> that maybe has some like cool additional pockets so that I can like counterbalance my gear and the baby and and maybe even like use it to yeah <laughs> just kidding but I'm not I'm not kidding if anyone wants to develop that I'm so kidding down. not kidding <laughs> yeah you mentioned the RX1 R2 and the fixed 35 millimeter lens is that a focal length that is just particularly appealing to you? What I'm dancing around here is, is there a particular focal length that, that you see in? You know, I've always loved the Prime 35. I think that's the classic photojournalist lens. And with my very first big paycheck from Newsday, which was the first newspaper I worked for, I spent all of it on my first 35 millimeter 1.4. It's just, for me, it's been extremely versatile and I like the fact that if I want to get closer, I have to physically get closer. You know, I have to move my feet. Obviously, that can be a challenge at times, too. And I'm like, oh, I wish I had my 24 to 70. But the quality is just so good. And I feel very fluid with that lens and that focal length. Maybe I do see in 35. I do see in this like 35 millimeter frame <laughs> at times I find my, I used to shoot, I used to have um, an old Hasselblad. So at times I see in square, like two and a quarter, but like the 35 has been, has been my go-to. So I, it doesn't surprise me that I fell deeply in love with that camera. And then it became that like gateway drug to the, to the whole thing. You were mentioning that you were just doing your first Nat Geo project. What's that project? So um, I had the opportunity to pitch a travel story about tourism on Guam because Guam is this amazing American territory in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, like 6,000 miles from California. Most mainland Americans don't quite understand Guam's relationship to us, but it's a big tourist destination for Japanese and Korean tourists looking to have the American experience. They come to Guam to ride around in brightly colored convertibles, to eat hamburgers, to go to gun ranges, you know, like, which I felt was particularly interesting given the fact that in their home countries, guns are essentially illegal. It's part of the life on Guam. So I notice it, but like I stopped noticing it the longer I lived there. But I started sharing some of the images with people and they were really curious because in the mainstream media, you really haven't seen a ton about Guam outside of the fact that North Korea was threatening to send nuclear missiles there a few summers ago, which by the way, I ended up being one of the most, it, it was kind of crazy because for about 24 hours, I was the most sought after journalist in the world because I was, people were like, who do we know on Guam? And it was like, Nancy's on Guam. <laughs> <laughs> what are wow. the chances? Yeah, it was crazy. Um, it was cool, too, because I ultimately got to do about 10 stories with the New York Times over the course of that, um, those three weeks. And, of course, it was great because there wasn't actually any nuclear war. Anyway, long story short, I pitched it. They liked it. I shot it with my A9 and my, my A7 III, mainly with my 35, sometimes with my 85, sometimes with my 24 to 70. And... It was amazing because I was also spending so much time kind of like, it was a lot more street shooting than I typically do, but 
the gear is so discreet. I felt a lot more comfortable in more uncomfortable situations. Like I don't love street shooting, so it, it made the whole experience a little bit better. But you know, I shot it entirely with Sony, which was my first big assignment that I got to do that. And I wrote the story and it's gonna be coming out in a few weeks online. So stay tuned. You can see more about Nancy Borowick in the show notes at alphauniverse.com. In a few minutes, she'll be back to offer some do this now advice for photojournalists who are just getting started in their careers. Many Sony cameras and lenses have built-in stabilization systems. In-camera stabilization is commonly referred to as IBIS, and in the lens, Sony's optical steady shot is referred to as OSS. The technologies are different with the same goal, to enable the photographer to get a sharp photo in challenging conditions with slower shutter speeds. A frequent question arises, can you use both stabilization systems together? To get the inside information, we spoke with Sony Senior Training Manager, Amy Kopman. Today I'm joined by Sony Senior Training Manager, Amy Kopman. Amy, thank you for being on the podcast. I'm always happy to be here. Amy, I want to ask about image stabilization. Sony has several lenses that have optical image stabilization in them. And also in the Sony bodies, we have in-body image stabilization. Correct. What happens if you use these two together? First of all, can you use them together? Yes, you most definitely can. That's a very common question we get. What happens? Do I have to turn one off or no? No, they are going to work together. You're not going to disturb the the cosmic balance of the universe. What's going to happen is, say we're using an Alpha 7 III, which has the in-body stabilization. If I'm using a lens on there that is stabilized, the camera is automatically going to recognize that the lens is stabilized, and it's going to let the lens stabilization work for the type of shake that you will see with that lens. So if we're talking a a telephoto lens, um, you know, the camera's going to recognize that, okay, we're shooting telephoto, that every little caffeine shake is going to be magnified. So the camera's going to let the lens do the stabilization that's best for its focal length. The camera then can take care of um, the shake that's maybe caused by uh, your hand holding. So basically, kind of the simplest way to say it is that they're going to work together. They're not going to fight each other out. Why would you want to use both of them together? Maybe you're trying to handhold. You know, I'm, I try to travel as light as possible. I don't always have a tripod with me. So I can let the camera's in-body stabilization take care of the movement of my hand, whereas the stabilization in the lens is going to correct for the type of shooting that I'm doing. So really having the two systems enabled at the same time, one isn't being shut off by the other. They're working in conjunction with each other. Correct. Like I said, you know, I, I don't like to, to carry a lot of stuff with me all the time. So there are certain low light situations where I'm shooting at a quarter of a second and I can do that handheld with the stabilization uh, in the body of the camera. And I would say in those scenarios, I will get four out of five shots perfectly clear and tack sharp due to that stabilization in the body. Just like everything on our cameras, those can be turned off. So if if you have a lens with stabilization and you don't want the stabilization effect, you can turn it off on the lens and you can always turn it off in the body of the camera as well. Excellent. Amy, thanks very much. You can submit your questions to the Sony team. 
go to the Alpha Universe Facebook page to contact us. Nancy Borowick makes such compelling images because she fully immerses herself within the story she's photographing. She joins us again with some Do This Now advice for new photojournalists who are finding their way. And we're back with Nancy Borowick. And Nancy, I wanted to ask you for our listeners interested in in doing the same kind of work you do, in doing that kind of photojournalism and telling the kinds of stories that are very intimate. What's a piece of advice that you could give them to do right now that would make a real difference in their photography? Well, um, I have lots of advice. I'd say, I'd say the most important would be to wear good footwear. Just kidding. That's not the most important, but it is important because your back needs to stay strong when you're, if you want to be out there shooting for a long time. And I've learned that lesson the hard way. But more seriously, I think the main advice I'd want to give is to trust yourself, to listen to yourself, to find, I try to find ways when I'm shooting to to feel comfortable, even in the uncomfortable, because the camera is such a powerful tool. And I think as photographers, it's an extension of who you are. And this world of photography, it's such an uncertain one. The technology is constantly changing. The industry is constantly changing. And it's really easy to lose sight of why you do what you do and who you do it for, because everyone has their opinions and their edits and their advice. And you got to take all of that with a grain of salt and just trust yourself and dive in. Get out of your own way (laughs) because stories are told every day and often they're the same stories, but no one's going to tell the story like you will. Just do it. And, and, and maybe like remind me of that once in a while because I, I sometimes need that too. What's the most personal is often the most universal. That is the truth. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for being my guest today on the Alpha Universe podcast. It's really been a pleasure. Same here. I'll, I'll come back anytime. Let me know. I could talk for hours. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Alpha Universe podcast. You can find the show notes for this episode at alphauniverse.com. Subscribe to the Alpha Universe podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Alpha Universe podcast is sponsored by Sony and produced by Christopher Robinson and Michael Atlin. The executive producer is Alex Stevens. Our engineer is Andy Brohard. Special thanks to the Sony digital imaging team who are always around to patiently answer our questions when it comes to the nuances of camera and lens technology.